So I want to talk a little bit about uh, where we are, where we might be going in terms of BDS uh, on and off campus. And I think we have some good illustrations of the relationship between campus and off campus now in the, in the sense that these worlds have very much, which, were, which once upon a time when we were all very young, um, were once very separable, but they've now kind of co collapsed in on one another. And as Asaf mentioned, 9-11 um, is actually a pretty good place to start. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to belabor the whole uh, issue of <clears throat> where you were. Um, I look around, I was sitting in exactly where I am now at my, at my desk. Um, but we, we face it in a very different context, in a very different world. And, and it usefully illustrates the responses that we've seen to 9-11 coming from campuses in particular usefully illustrates where we are in the broader sense of academia and its and its values and its uh, very much self-referential uh, approach to things and very specifically with respect to BDS and Israel and anti-Semitism. So I'll just mention a couple of a couple of, of incidents that I think are um, useful, usefully illustrate where, where we're at. Um, many of you may have read about the, <clears throat> the uh, student government um, senator at Washington University in St. Louis who gathered up all of the flags, um, almost 3,000 American flags that had been placed on, on a lawn by the college Republicans bundled them up, was videoed doing this, um, and had planned to dispose of them. And uh, the, the university administration issued a condemnation, but they did not mention um, Islamophobia. And his protest was against the Islamophobia that allegedly resulted from 9-11 and the um, the U.S. wars in the Middle East that resulted from 9-11. And if you go to various um, college newspapers, and I don't recommend it, um, every other college newspaper has a, an opinion piece by some student or another, most of whom were not alive, uh, none of whom were alive, during 9-11, talking about Islamophobia and the impact on the American Muslim community. And um, this, I think, is, is very telling of the solipsism, the, the self-referential uh, self nature of academia today, and um, in particular, this community, which has, to a certain extent, um, begun to dominate campus life, at the very least. Um, another Another illustration of this is the uh, is a panel discussion that took place yesterday um, <coughs> uh, online called "Whose Narrative: Twenty Years Since 9/11," which was sponsored by uh, the Asian and Middle Eastern Studies program at the University at San Francisco State University, and which featured, among others. Um, 
people like uh, Sami al-Aryan, who was convicted of providing material support to Hamas, and Hatem Bazian, who is the, the spiritual godfather of Students for Justice in Palestine. And it's, it was all part of a, you know, I'll, I'll just read the, the description, um, an inaugural, inaugural roundtable kicking off a semester-long intergenerational conversation that challenges the exceptionalization of 9-11, the legitimization of war on terror and other imperialist wars and interventions, justification of the security state, and the promotion of hyper-masculinity and a colonial gender and sexualized order of modernization and civilization. So in this kind of word salad are uh, of anti-imperialism and anti-masculinity, you have, again, a, a, a solipsistic view that, um, that Muslims and American Muslims in particular are the true victims of 9-11. Um, and these are refracted through the, uh, through the, uh, lenses and, and verbiage of academia. <clears throat> the best of which, though, I think, was a, a Syracuse University political science professor who described 9-11 um, as a, an attack on heteropatriarchal and capitalistic systems. So uh, the bottom line is that you don't have to know anything about 9-11, but 9-11 has become a kind of metaphor for one's self and to, to view the world and and to uh, everyone has their own 9-11. <clears throat> and this, I think, is, is very telling because these are, in some cases, precisely the same people who have engineered um, a, a kind of intellectual takeover of campuses who have moved downstream into, into politics and other realms of, of American and global society. And I'll cite two examples. One is the, the, the resolution passed by the teachers union at San Diego Community College condemning Israel. This was this past week and calling for, among other things, the right of return. And also uh, the way that these kinds of attitudes, anti-imperialist, so-called anti heteropatriarchal, so-called cis-normativity, um, are baked into really all levels of pedagogy, K through 12, as well as college now, as typified by the California Ethnic Studies curriculum, which, is, uh, which has been approved and um, remains to be signed into, into effect. <clears throat> So as I said at the beginning, one can no longer say that, uh, that university life, uh, academic life, is, is somehow separable from the rest of, the rest of life, the rest of humanity and uh, experience. The two are, have, been, have been conflated, and the former has very much, I think, taken over the latter. And uh, much to the detriment of, of uh, politics and much to the detriment of, of pedagogy. And it's indicative of, of where we are and where we're going. And, and in this respect, again, politics being downstream from um, education of all sorts. So tonight, 
presumably the Burlington, Vermont City Council will vote on a BDS resolution, potentially uh, making it the first municipality in the United States to call for a boycott of Israel and not least of all, the right of return, which um, as we know, calls for the dissolution of Israel by um, the, permitting the return of so-called refugees to, to Israel and, and um, destroying Israel as a Jewish state. So this is, in, in a sense, this is where we are at now. Now, uh, having said that, the academia, um, in particular, and, and the country as a whole, are still being shaped by the um, COVID-19 pandemic. And one can decide where, what one thinks about it and where one is on, on uh, in terms of attitudes regarding what should be done. Um, but this is, this is the, I think, the, the, the dominant issue on, on campus now, and campuses have ranged in their responses from demanding uh, vaccinations of everyone to demanding that everybody being vaccinated and locking them up, students up in their rooms anyway, as at Connecticut College, um, all the way to um, really quite normal looking kinds of uh, fall semesters at, at, different, at different places. <clears throat> so that's one. Th these are the things I think that are, are shaping shaping the fall. Will will continue to shape the year. But I also want to mention one thing that should be shaping the fall semester, uh, intellectually, politically, on and off campus, but is not, and that's um, Afghanistan. And I mention this because, and and I discussed this a little bit in the, the last BDS monitor, which came out. Uh, week and a half ago, all of the campus organizations and faculty groups and unions and churches and whatever, who were um, vociferous, to say the least, in their condemnations of Israel in May regarding the, <clears throat> the brief Gaza war, um, Hamas bombarding Israel with thousands of rockets and, and Israel responding, um, they have been utterly and completely silent regarding the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan and the American policy, which essentially permitted this to happen in with unprecedented speed. So we can call this a double standard, but it's, it's not a, a double standard in a sense. It's a kind of deliberate immorality in, in omitting this. It's, it's a deliberate um, kind of uh, elision of, of reality. One major portion of reality, the fact that 38 million people are now under the domination of the Taliban, <clears throat> um, welcomed by some and um, not welcomed by others, um, but with measurable profound effects, not least of all on, on women and children, as we see on, on videos. Know, women being literally beaten to death in the streets by t Taliban enforcers for some infraction or another. This is completely and totally ignored, and I suspect it will be completely and totally ignored going on. And to my mind, at least, it points to the to the immorality of 
of the BDS movement and the movement to um, ostracize and destroy Israel because it, it simply ignores um, it, it ignores the, the, the true evil in the world in favor of mythical evil on the part of Jews. So that's, that's sort of the bad news as I see it. And there's obviously lots more bad news. Um, I want to talk about uh, a little bit about interesting um, positive signs that suggest that, uh, that all is not lost, all is never lost, um, but that there are counter currents and there is a counter culture out there that opposes all of this, um, all of this kind of stuff. And that deserves more attention and deserves more support. Um, for one thing, we'll mention the, um, the, the Ben and Jerry's situation, um, which is a kind of idiotic um, situation to begin with, Ben and Jerry's, uh, the Vermont, not coincidentally, Vermont-based ice cream company announced over the summer that it was going to essentially boycott, boycott Israel um, by with, withdrawing or ending the license for manufacture and so on. And they wanted to do more, but they, they couldn't. In any case, uh, they're owned by a giant global conglomerate called Unilever. And Unilever has now experienced the state of Arizona, which has an anti-BDS law, divesting from, from, its, uh, from its investments. In, in the Unilever Corporation to the tune of $200 million. Um, and that's beginning to talk about some actual money. Now, um, I saw, uh, I haven't looked up the Unilever's stock price in, in a couple of days. It hasn't had a good summer, but uh, lots of consumer products um, go up and down. And this will be challenged in court um, as all BDS, anti-BDS laws have been challenged in court um, but it's an interesting it's an interesting sign that in in some places in some states there have been actual real consequences for um, companies setting their own foreign policy <clears throat> and finally there's the case of of, of axel springer um, springer is a giant Titanic um, German publishing conglomerate. It's run by a, a man called Axel Springer. And they have just bought um, the platform called Politico, which is a, a well-known, obviously, politics website, sort of a newspaper, not exactly. In any case, Springer, uh, Axel Springer himself is a very, very strong supporter of, of Israel, who does not in, does not brook any, um, any calls among his German employees for uh, boycotting, much less destroying Israel. And he's, he's on record as saying in front of his German employees, if this is what you believe, go work someplace else. So he's bought um, Politico now, and this caused a, a brief kind of flurry of concern on the part of 
on the part of Politico's employees, many of whom, most of whom are on the, all of whom are on the political left, many of whom are um, publicly or covertly opposed to the existence of Israel. And cognizant of the, of the American context and the existence of the First Amendment, the company has said that it will, it will not um, force its employees to um, sign a loyalty oath or, or refrain from criticizing Israel or, or what have you. But it is interesting that here's a, a major uh, media platform, which is now very, very unusually owned by a, uh, a pro-Israel owner. And you can look around at the global media landscape, and I cannot think of another another such thing in really anywhere. Certainly when you look at uh, the major platforms in the United States, the, the Times, the Post, uh, the Los Angeles Times, and so on, all of these are owned by um, individuals or, or families or conglomerates that are either disinterested or, or uh, hostile to Israel and their employees and the platforms themselves are um, almost uniformly hostile to, to Israel, like the Times, uh, New York Times, and like the Washington Post. So it will be interesting to see how editorial decisions and personnel and management decisions go forward in this, uh, with this Springer takeover, which has, I think, at least the potential to introduce some, some balance, let's say, into the American media landscape. And we can contrast, you know, certain, certainly the, we know the opposite is, uh, is always the case. You know, look, look what happened last year when um, Barry Weiss was basically run out of the New York Times um, by, by uh, employees, by junior employees um, who were literally hating on her. And um, she was not supported in the least by, um, by senior staff, senior editors or management. Um, so I think one of the implications of this is that maybe, um, maybe it's a sign that some senior managers somewhere and senior editors somewhere who still aspire or who would like to aspire to the old fashioned um, journalistic ethic of balance and, and all that um, stuff might have, might have a chance, at least in this one, in this one platform, in this, in this one area. Um, I'm not incredibly hopeful, but, um, but we'll see. Um, so there are lots of other things that we could we could talk about of the the J Street atheist rabbi who's now become the chaplain of the Harvard Divinity School, and um, uh, the the Fairfax County um, school board member who issued uh, Department of Education um, head who issued instructions that nobody should talk about 9-11 in terms of who the actual perpetrators are, because that would be mean, essentially. 
but let's let's stop it here and and try and take some some questions and um, I'll I'll be very curious to see where you all the listeners think that we're going and and uh, your perceptions of where where we're at so all good all good thank you Alex as always um, all right so as Alex mentioned you know the floor is now open. Uh, as I said before, if you have a question, just uh, raise your virtual hand and I'll be able to unmute you or you can type in your question uh, via the chat. Uh, I see we have uh, a few hands up. So let's start with Marvin. <coughs> Let me see if I can unmute Marvin here and uh, and we'll have his question. Marvin, can you hear us? Marvin? Uh, Marvin, let's see if we can... Get Marvin to answer. Uh, Marvin, are you able to hear us? Okay, we'll go back to Marvin. Uh, let's see if we uh, if we can if Murray can hear us. Murray, are you able to hear us? Murray. Yeah. 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 The floor is yours. The first question I like to ask is I have no picture. Aren't you projecting a picture of your speaker? We are not. We are not. It's, it's only audio. Only audio. Okay. Uh, what I'd like to point out is there are certain, there are certain areas of human relations that are accepted as negative. One of them, of course, is, is racism and, and uh, taking over another country and so on. And wouldn't you say that the, the people from Islam, mostly Islam, that supporters of Islam paint all what is happening in the Middle East as related to what's accepted as bad. That is their modus operandi. And uh, it's I'm just trying to think of something that uh, that would uh, exemplify what I said and just because I want to think of it I can't they are always Israeli is Israel is always painted in a negative light in that way okay, thank well, you I, let me try and respond to this. Um, this is a very broad, a very broad area, and it's it's very hard to and dangerous to generalize about you know uh, an entire an entire global religious tradition that encompasses a billion or so people. And I think um, I think it you know look traditionally in the last century. Um, 
Muslim states have used Israel as a kind of uh, foil against their, uh, you know, for, for their own interests. That it's a it's an issue that is is uh, manipulable to distract their own populations against um, against their own interests. Um, by leveraging certain parts of the um, Islamic tradition and Islamic history. Um, on the other hand, I have to say that um, I've been very reassured in the last couple of years about um, to see how certain uh, Muslim countries, which are no more or less Muslim than others, uh, like Morocco, like the UAE, um, to come out and um, establish full diplomatic relations with with Israel and you know send send greetings on um, Rosh Hashanah to to Israeli the Israeli people and so on so the political context I think very much very much matters and um, you know like all like all things like all traditions nothing is Nothing is necessarily fixed for forever, so we can so we can be hopeful. What I don't find particularly hopeful is is the way that um, many American Muslim organizations, in particular, um, have adopted the kind of traditional hostility towards Israel and and Jews and um, use it as a political issue. Uh, as a political tool here in the U.S., but that's another that's another um, uh, hour-long discussion right there. So, um, so okay. should we keep it moving a little bit? Yeah, by all means. Uh, so, uh, as I'm looking for the the next question, Alex, you know, so l let me just you know, as a segue, you know, maybe you know, this maybe as a point of reference there, uh, maybe you want to touch on. So, you know, we just also marked the uh, the anniversary of the Abraham Accords. And so you have, you know, on the one hand, you have this, the marking of the anniversary of 9-11. You have, you know, the Abraham Accords, which again is showing a, a, a shift um, in Muslim countries and attitude towards Israel, as you mentioned before. Um, you know, related to, of course, our wheelhouse and the topics that we talk about, uh, clearly um, we're not seeing the reality on the ground uh, trickle down into the academy. And maybe, you know, there, there's, you know, maybe you want to touch a little bit about, on that, you know, and of course, you know, the, you know, the total deflection and the political toxicity that we're seeing uh, about the nature of, you know, what is actually happening on the ground and what is being perceived uh, in, uh, in the United States and obviously in the West. Uh, and maybe talk a little bit about that, specifically at this, at this point in time when we're celebrating, we're marking 9-11 and we're celebrating the, uh, the, the anniversary of the Abraham Accords. Well, that's a very interesting point. Um, you know the the reaction of the BDS movement and and many um, American Muslim organizations towards the Abraham Accords was and remains quite negative. That uh, this was a betrayal of the of the Palestinian cause and the Palestinian people. Of course, the 
Palestinian Authority as well as Hamas um, joined in their rejection and and have have been very um, you know forthright in their rejection all along. But there's a there's a kind of um, discontinuity or something between what we see in the Middle East, where um, a variety of countries and maybe even peoples at the ground level are um, looking at their own at their own interests and their own situations and saying, well, you know, Israel is not is is not the demonic uh, force that that we were perhaps led to think of it as. Um, the Palestinian cause is not the central cause of the Arab world and the Muslim world, um, but it's one of, of many. And that the Palestinian people and certainly Palest organized Palestinians and Palestinian institutions and organizations, um, which are so demanding of uh, that their cause be put at the center, um, perhaps are not are not deserving. We, we we certainly have seen this in the last year or so uh, among various Gulf voices and Saudi voices that of you know <laughs> to put it bluntly, we've supported the Palestinians for seventy years, and uh, they are they are ungrateful. And what did we get out of it? And now we're going to think about think about ourselves. And this this has, in part, a, a real geopolitical context that, as these countries face off against Iran, um, who's wh where are the real threats coming from? Um, Israel is not it's not threatening them in in any way. But at the same time, we see that the Palestinian cause is absolutely central in the United States to American Muslims and American Muslim organizations. They, they, and they won't have it any other way. And they've been very successful, increasingly successful, in, in putting forward the view that, that the Palestinians are the pivotal intersectional cause for, uh, for the entire world, particularly among among the left and people of color and and so on and so you have these kinds of you know at, at one extreme you have these bizarre um oxymoron kind of things like gays for palestine you know if you, if you want to talk about heteropatriarchal societies that are based on cis normativity um, which have inutterable hostility towards um, towards gays, lesbians, and so on. Well, that's the tradition. That's Palestinian society, and that's traditional societies like traditional Muslim societies like Palestinians. But um, they've been Palestinian groups in America have been very successful getting this <coughs> excuse me viewpoint across. And now, you know, here I'll mention. We spoke a little bit about this um, this webinar that that was held um, about you know, rethinking 9/11. Well, it was designed to support uh, an initiative called Teaching Palestine: Pedagogical Praxis and the Indivisibility of Justice. 
And this is a, a kind of sweeping effort to put the Palestinian cause literally at the center of all ethnic studies curricula, all um, political science curricula in K through 12 and at the, at the college level. <laughs> and we see at, um, you know, in, in various uh, iterations of the, the California ethnic studies curriculum, well, particularly the most, the most extreme ones, the liberated versions, that the Palestinian cause um, is, is given um, center, uh, center place. And it's all part of a pedagogy, supposedly, of, of liberation and anti-imperialism and, and so on. And you know, one of the questions that I have, and I, I, don't, have a, I don't have a great answer, is, is how, this, how this came about um, in, in otherwise, uh, in organizations such as, I don't know, teachers unions, and uh, education school curriculum writing faculty and, and so on, how the Palestinian cause became the central example of liberation and, and is linked with um, the Native American experience and with uh, the Black American experience and with everybody else's experience that it has basically nothing in common with except this, this kind of papered, papered over notion of anti-imperialism and anti-heteronormativity um, uh, and, and so on, terms that, don't, that just don't really apply. Um, and I think some of it is, is a reflection of the, of the hard work that Palestinian activists and organizations and Muslims and, and American Muslims do to push this agenda, it's the only agenda that 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 people seem to agree on that that Israel is a satanic entity and the Jews who and anybody who supports Israel are evil imperialist settler colonialists um, and probably rich white heterosexuals, um, and this has very much captured the moment uh, as a kind of um, all-purpose uh, standard of opposition to to everything that is the opposite. Uh, it, it's 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 opposed to whiteness. It's opposed to uh, nationalism. It's opposed to imperialism and colonialism and, and capitalism, of course, and so on. And and that the details and the reality don't really matter. I think some of this is simply a function of anti-Semitism that people are 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 willing to embrace this, uh, thinkingly and unthinkingly. Uh, I, I think there's some kind of story to be told about the nature of American anti-Semitism, um, middle and and particularly kind of upper middle class anti-Semitism that was not recognized for a long time, that it was disguised in, in various ways, um, but that has, be, has burst out thanks to the BDS movement. And it's been given license to express 
um, thanks to intersectionality, because Zionism is, is the same as, as racism, which is the same as imperialism, which is the same as whiteness, and, and so on. And um, it's, a complicated, it's a complicated equation. I don't, think we've, I don't think we've worked it all out yet, but it's, 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 bad for, it's bad for Israel and it's bad for Jews. It's also bad for America, because it makes America a deeply intolerant kind of place. And it makes um, it makes it compromises institutions deeply, um, and it feeds into the kind of racialization and and um, really include which has taken over literally every single institution in this uh, in this country, from education to the government to the military to corporations. Um, and it's a I mean it's a means to power, obviously. Uh, it also, uh, and, and as a means to power, it has um, designated targets and, and enemies, uh, hoarders and wreckers, as uh, as the as the early Soviets would uh, would have put it, and uh, and it's explicitly racist. So the never underestimate well, only, the, only, only for some, not for all. <laughs> right. Well, uh, you know, but never underestimate the utility of 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 racism. Correct, and, um, and I think that that's the moment that we're that we're living in, and um, I don't have I don't necessarily have a good feeling about where it's where it's going to go um, from here. But let's take some more questions because I'll right. otherwise I'll just ramble on. All good. Uh, so thank you for that and 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 that summary. And and let's go. So let's go on. You know, and a good a good segue to the next question here uh, that. Um, uh, that Eric uh, Steckler has. Um, so uh, apropos 1984 reality and the things that are uh, uh, that celebrate uh, the uh, the reality on the ground. So uh, he, he wants you to comment on uh, on of course the celebration now of Durban uh, and uh, and the increase of the number of nations that have dropped out. Um, you know, and he's asking, uh, will they still have the you know the uh, chutzpah, of course, to focus on Israel's mistreatment of women, while on the other hand, you're seeing and contrasting the reality uh, in, in Afghanistan. But uh, but maybe also we want to talk about, which we, we haven't mentioned yet, really, you know, the marking of Durban now, once again, you know, and Durban obviously is the the, uh, the beginning uh, of the uh, of where BDS began uh, back in, you know, 2004 or five. And here we are today, and now celebrating that again, and bringing once again, um, kind of the invigorating uh, that narrative. Well, Durban is Durban is interesting, and uh, because, uh, as you said, it's it, it marked a, a kind of begin a kind of beginning for the modern the modern phase of BDS, and and I'll I'll mention again, as I sometimes do that really the BDS movement goes back to the 19, um, late 1960s and early 1970s, and that the same people and some of the same organizations with different names are, are involved and have gone through many, many different iterations over the past nearly 50 years. Um, and that there are other trajectories that really have to be taken into consideration when you look at this phenomenon, but yes, Durban. Um, and, you know, the, 
I think it was. Uh, and just to clarify, I was. I wasn't. You know. I wasn't. You know. Uh, you know. You know. Uh, you know. Minimum. You know. Obviously, not. Not. Uh, no. 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 Not at all. Using turban as a springboard. Yeah. The for the modern era, let's yeah. call it the modern era. Because out of it came uh, the the modern calls to boycott Israel on the part of intellectuals and academics and and the modern organizations like SJP um, and and so on. But um, as as you noted, um, I, something like fifteen different countries have now decided to boycott Durban, the the twentieth anniversary um, celebration, precisely because it shows this this thing shows no sign of having gone anywhere except further down into mm -hmm. condemnations of, of, of Israel and, and so on. Um, but you have to contrast that, I think, with the continued allegiance and, uh, or you know, support or something of the international community, including Western countries that are boycotting Durban, New Zealand and Belgium and the United States and so on, for um, various United Nations human rights organs and the various United Nations Palestinian organs, um, which, again, to an extent which most people don't understand, dominate the, the calendar and the budget and the, the activities of, of the United Nations. And now that, uh, you know, the Taliban are sitting on the UN, UN Women's Commission or something. So I, I think it's easy, I think it's easier for uh, the international community to give up on this one tainted kind of um, event than it is to give up on institutions that are equally tainted, if, if not more so. Uh, Durban, is a, Durban is a symbol, and it's a symbol of, of uh, anti-Semitic hatred. Um, and that's kind of inescapable. And, and uh, diplomats seem to realize that, so good, good for them, and they want to stay away. Um, I, I don't know what kind of reception it's going to have in the, the broader uh, intellectual community, human rights so-called community. Um, and I, I'm sure that uh, the Western countries boycotting Durban will, will be condemned in the pages of the nation by their new... Um, you know, Palestine correspondent who's on the permanent Palestine beat and, and so on, who's a former SJP member. Um, I don't think it'll resonate. Uh, I don't think the whole thing will resonate in, in broader, in broader media because it is kind of, it is kind of uh, dubious. And, um, and the, and the real problems within the United Nations system and within the human rights organizations, so-called, that are the, that, that push the agenda of human rights, so-called, um, globally, um, that's not going to change. And Palestine, whatever, Palestinian rights will, will continue to, to dominate. And, and I would also 
I'll point out, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, here you have a situation, you know, I watched a, watched a little TikTok video this morning of, a, of an Afghan woman being beaten to death in the streets by a Taliban enforcer. Um, that is not going to resonate anywhere, unfortunately. And that's, that's um, appalling. That says something appalling about uh, about media. That this isn't on the front page of every newspaper and website in the world, uh, as opposed to um, some story that has something to do with the Palestinians, which will inevitably migrate it, its way to to the front page. And um, so, you know. So yes, okay. Let, let's let's move on to something else. Oh, good. Thank you. Um, clearly, we need to we, there's <laughs> we need to focus uh, get our priorities straight as we as we know. Um, so let me try to combine uh, Barry Barry's question and Sharon's question. Um, Barry was commenting about you know the the wants to know a little bit more about the the element of the how strong the progressive wing of the Democratic Party uh, you know is these days. Uh, and Sharon is also um, commenting about the the nature of um, uh, of the infrastructure of SJP and, and BDS, and that that puts um, Jews on the defensives. And what kind of you know what kind of recourse do we have to deal with that reality? And maybe you want to tie it in also to the progressive element that plays into the to the to the, to the party. Uh, and talk about those two um, uh, joint efforts, and kind of to kind of try to explain that element as well. Well, the 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 party has has a a very vocal progressive wing. I don't want to I don't want to repeat a lot of obvious things that people people know. Um, AOC and Cory Bush newly elected and, and so on. And they've actually been, I, I think when you come down to it, they've been very un unsuccessful in putting forward a, uh, a legislative agenda. And they've gone all in on the reconciliation bill and on on the infrastructure bill and, and so on. And I think they will probably be disappointed in in the end because they're not many of these um, individuals are not politicians per se who are interested in wheeling and dealing to get a to get a job done and and to compromise but they're ideologues who enjoy above all getting their their um, quotes in the newspapers and and uh, retweeted and and so on. I think they're very much indicative of where the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is. Uh, the 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 old Pelosi wing gave them gave them lots of leeway at the beginning two years ago, and they they ran with it, and they've been very hard to to rein in. Now that we're seeing real divisions within the party, and re, uh, coming up in a year towards the midterms where moderates are really under threat because of the state of the the state of the economy inflation at 8.4 percent and uh so on 
and um, uh, we're seeing more more efforts to to push back against the the, the Sanders oriented economic proposals and against some of the the more vocal um, anti-American, let's say, and anti-Israel um, shenanigans by the squad and their and their hangers on. But that said, <clears throat> as um, as tonight's vote in the Burlington, Vermont City Council will will show, will likely show, um, there is a tremendous grassroots that um, is is out there and which is you know based in the far left wing of the Democratic Party as well as in the so-called Democratic Socialists of America Party, which are you know basically communist light um, groups which have direct alliances with uh, at least the DSA does with Antifa groups all over the country and they use each other the DSA uses Antifa as, as muscle um, which have alliances with um, BDS groups all across the country we saw them we saw BDS groups organizing with the DSA and with Antifa to do block the boat events in Seattle and Long Beach and in Elizabeth, New Jersey earlier this year. So there is a kind of um, synthesis, let's say. And the way that it, we don't understand uh, much about how it's organized in terms of personnel, in terms of money. Some of it, some of it we do understand. Some of the, the common funding sources are, are under are understood um, various far left foundations based on the on the west coast and, um, <clears throat> things like things like that as well as you know the the better understood um, bds funding sources like the rockefeller brothers fund which are on the on the east coast uh if if nothing else it puts into um, sharper relief, the role of foundations as, as really funding anti-Israel and anti-American activities all across the country. Something that really hasn't been seen, seen before in American history, not that I can, not that I can think of. And, you know, because all of these groups, including the BDS movement, are Broadly speaking, anti-American. They're they're uh, they're opposed to the concept of a you know one nation under God and under equal treatment under the law and the the, the actual provisions of of the Constitution. And they espouse a, a, a an intersectional socialist oriented um, equity based um, permanent power struggle, um, which is, you know, very kind of traditional Frankfurt School communist um, approach. Of, they all work together. Now, who, who, the, uh, who the useful idiot is in the equations remains to be seen. I've, I suspect that everybody thinks everybody well. Everybody always thinks that the other guy is the useful idiot, who is uh, who is carrying, you know, carrying the water, and who will be 
disposed of at the end. Um, I think that the midterm elections will be very clarifying uh, in the sense that the, the public face of, of this iceberg, um, much of which is really, you know, below the waterline uh, <clears throat> and unreported on by the mainstream media, um, the public face, I think, will suffer some, some uh, setbacks in the midterm in the midterm elections, not all of them, because I think there some of these characters will run in very safe or running in very safe districts and are, are not going to be not going to be challenged. But um, overall, I suspect that the the Democratic Party is going to lose a lot of seats in both the, certainly the House and uh, and maybe even the Senate, which will stymie the legislative agenda, which will make the the squad even angrier and and more uh, strident and um, and so on. But I think what we need really is, is more clarity about, um, as the question indicated, about how the whole thing works together, where the money comes from, who the personnel are, what the interlocking directorates of, of, uh, of, of organization are, who, who sits on whose board, who calls, who calls what shots. We will always find in these situations that BDS groups and American Muslim groups have a central position because that their, um, their goals are, their goals are generally pretty simple. Um, it's first and foremost to uh, eliminate American support for Israel as, uh, as, a, as a first stop on the way to eliminating Israel. After which there's probably some disagreement about, about specific economic or political issues. Um, but we, what we need are, are journalists. We need journalists and investigators who are out there looking at who, which foundations are funding whom and which uh, corporations are taking which graduates from which, um, you know, program, uh, you know, that specializes in, in, you know, politically responsible investment or whatever it's called and, and, and instituting po policies within corporations. Um, it's, all, it's all connected. Again, very much below, there's an iceberg below the waterline that we don't, that we don't see. No, but we know that there are people working on various aspects of this. So hopefully things will come out in bits and pieces, but as always, you can't rely on main, any mainstream media or any one media source to give you the picture of anything. You have to go all over the place and look at a million different websites and talk to a million different uh, people in order to get even the faintest idea of what's going on. So is that a good place to stop? That's a good place to stop. And obviously, you know, that uh, is part of uh, the work we try to do. And, you know, obviously, you know, uh, looking at the bigger picture and trying to understand the historical roots and uh, and understanding everything that's going around and connecting the dots. Uh, this is uh, this is the challenge. Uh, and obviously, this is part of the landscape that we're all cha all challenged with and uh, that we have to cope with in order to uh, to, de to deal with the reality on campus and in America today, to your point. So, I mean, these are these are these are the big issues.
Uh, unfortunately, uh, our time, you know, is ended. So, uh, you know, I, uh, I apologize. We did not get to everybody's question today. But of course, as I mentioned earlier, you can always email us at BDS at, uh, at BDSmoder at SPME.org. And we will do our best to respond in a timely fashion. I want to thank everybody again today for joining us. Uh, and to echo Alex's earlier comments, I hope everybody's doing safe and healthy uh, and, uh, you know, wherever you are. And, of course, wishing everybody, once again, a happy and healthy uh, Jewish New Year. Uh, I want to thank Alex, as always, uh, for the uh, for your for your comments and for um and for and for taking us through uh, all the uh, many hurdles that we have to tackle here uh, as we try to understand the reality that we're facing politically, culturally, and of course academically that we are, you know, in our space. Um, we please pay attention, uh, look out for more notices for upcoming webinars. Uh, we will be resuming them uh, slowly. Uh, between all the Jewish holidays, uh, but uh, look out for them. And we look forward to seeing you everybody again soon. Uh, I wish everybody a good afternoon or a good morning, depending if you're on the West Coast. And we look forward to talking again. So thank you very much and have a good day.